So let's, let's start tonight with this. How many of you remember uh, or have ever seen the reality television program Undercover Boss? Anybody ever watch that? Undercover Boss uh, follows the story of a, a company's boss, a company's owner, who dons a disguise and goes to work at the ground level of his company. And his purpose is to try and identify with his people. And as he gets up close with them, literally becoming one of them, he experiences the same struggles. He faces the same difficulties. He endures the same pains. And at the end, he celebrates the same victories. Some 2,000 years ago, God became one of us. He donned the appearance of a human and he dwelt among us and he experienced the same struggles. He faced the same difficulties. He endured the same pains. And he celebrated the same victories with his people. We call this event the incarnation or literally the becoming in flesh. I think the simplest explanation of the incarnation was given by C.S. Lewis when he said the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. Now John put it like this in verse 14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as of the, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word that had always existed in the beginning with God and as God, as we're told in the first two verses of the Gospel of John, came down and he took on human life and he lived among the very creatures that he had created. Now, sadly, there are some today, some cults today, some false teachers today who deny the validity of the doctrine of the incarnation. But I submit to you tonight that they do so to the peril of their own soul. Because Jesus said in John chapter 8 and verse 4, For if ye believe not that I am he, that I am God, that I am God in the flesh, he said this, ye shall die in your sins. You cannot deny the deity of Jesus Christ and be born again. Now make no mistake about it. Jesus was fully God. And he was fully man. He was as much God as though he were not man at all. But at the same time, he was as much man 
as though he were not God at all. He was all God. He, he was not all God and no man. He was not all man and no God. He was not half God and half man. He was fully God and fully man. He was the God man. John said he was made flesh. Philippians chapter 2, Paul wrote, and he said that Jesus took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Paul would later write in 1 Timothy 3, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. The writer of Hebrews said this, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also, Jesus, our great high priest, God himself, likewise took part of the son. He was made flesh. And John said he dwelt among us. Jesus literally set up his residence among the people as God. The word dwelt actually means to set up a tent. Jesus came to earth and he camped out for three and a half years. And it was glorious, John said. He was made flesh and dwelt among us and John said we beheld him. This same John authored the epistle of 1 John. And he opens that writing by saying this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. So John acknowledges here that he and, and, and the other believers heard Jesus. They heard him teach and share the glorious news of God's love for man and how man can be delivered from sin and death and live forever with him. They heard him talk one-on-one -on -one with individuals and they heard him teach audiences of thousands. They spoke with him themselves and they heard him speak to them. John also said that they saw him with their eyes, which was his way of refuting what some false prophets of his day were saying. And that is that Jesus was just a phantom, a ghost, a, a spirit, if you will. And John says, no, 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 no. He was real. We weren't only ear witnesses, we were eye witnesses. They watched him as he healed the sick. He watched them as he held the children and as he helped the helpless. They saw him, John said, and they handled him. That is, they touched him. And if we believe that what John and others have to say is true, 
then the only conclusion that we can come to tonight is that God really was manifest in the flesh. I mean, who else could do what he did? Who else made lame legs walk and dumb tongues talk and blind eyes see and dead bodies live again? Who else could walk on water and still the storm with just the sound of his voice? Who else could call a dead man out of his tomb four days after he died? And for that matter, who else could get up out of his own tomb three days after his death? I'm telling you who nobody but Jesus, God in the flesh. Look at verse 15, John bare witness of him and cried saying, this was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me for he was before me. John had the special privilege of introducing Jesus to the nation of Israel. But he also had the difficult task of preparing them to receive him as Messiah. If you know his message, he called them to repent of their sins and to give evidence of their repentance by being baptized publicly and living changed lives. And by the way, church, that is still God's plan for every person who comes to faith in him. It is his plan that they identify with him in, 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 in water, baptism, and then that they live lives that, that bring forth fruit, that give evidence of a changed heart on the inside. The Bible knows nothing. Listen, the Bible knows nothing of a salvation that does not lead to change. Now, let's understand tonight that people change at different rates. Just like all of your children grew at, at different rates. They learned to walk at different times. They learned to talk at, at different times. They learned to do various things at different times. But the point is, they all changed. And listen, anybody who's come to faith in Jesus Christ, listen, we talked about this Sunday morning in our connection group. I mean, there are some people who, who, who had the testimony of coming to faith in Christ and there were some things that changed in their life right then. I mean, it was over. They were done with it. Whether it was alcohol or tobacco or whatever, it's like, boom, testimony was given Sunday morning. Man, I got saved and I was done. And then there are others who said, man, I wish that was me because I got saved and I struggled. Well, yeah, that happens. But the point is, there is change that occurs. Any man who's in Christ is a new creature. What does the Bible say? Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The Bible talks about the, the fruit of our lives. If you point to a tree and you tell me that's an apple tree, but there aren't any apples on it, I'm not going to believe you. Because I don't know one tree from another tree. They're all trees. 
If you're going to convince me that it's an apple tree, Brother Sid, there better be some apples on it. If you're going to tell me that's a pear tree, there better be some pears on it. And the point is tonight, if we're a Christian, we better have some proof in our life that we've been born again. And that our life has been changed. Back to verse 15, John gives testimony to the Lord's humanity and to his deity. He that cometh after me is a reference to the Lord's birth and his earthly ministry. As to his birth, Jesus was born six months after John the Baptist. As to his ministry, John said, there is one coming after me. He said, you'll see him and you'll hear him and you'll experience him in real time who is preferred before me. That means that he is greater or more important and, 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 and mightier than me. Why? John said, because he was before me. That's a testimony to the Lord's deity. John is giving testimony that Jesus existed in eternity before he ever existed in time. And that's what we read in John, uh, the first two verses of this gospel. In the beginning was the Word. Look at it. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And then John identifies the word in verse 14, was the one that was made flesh and dwelt among us. He's talking of none other than Jesus. He was with God and was God in the beginning. So he existed with God as God before time ever started. But he also existed in time. As flesh and blood and he declared or he revealed to men the otherwise invisible God. The Greek word for declared uh, is the word from which we get our English word exegesis. When a preacher exegetes the scriptures as I'm trying to do tonight, that means that he expounds the scriptures in such a way that they are understandable. Jesus was the incarnate exegesis of God. He accurately and authoritatively expounded him in ways that people could understand him. Are you with me tonight? Stay with me. Come on. That's why... That's why later Jesus could say to Philip, he that has seen me has seen the Father. Now all of that brings us to what I really want to focus on tonight from verses 14 and 16. Let's look at them again. And the Word was made flesh that is so important. And dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. And look at those, that next phrase. Full. Look at it, church. Full of grace and truth. And then look at verse 16. And of his fullness 
have all we received and grace for grace. Though the real life of Jesus was lived out on this earth some 2,000 years ago, listen, his life still matters to us today because it's still ministering to us today. Note the phrase, full of grace and truth. Not grace without truth. That would be weak and enabling. Not truth without grace. That would be harsh and demanding. But the perfect, look at it, the perfect balance of grace and truth. Jesus had the grace to sit down and eat with sinners. But at the same time, he had the truth to call them to repentance and deliver them from their sin. He had enough truth to call the Pharisees hypocrites. But he had enough grace to pray for their forgiveness, even as he was dying at their hands. He had enough grace to forgive the woman caught in adultery. But he had enough truth to say to her, go and sin no more. He had enough grace to save the woman at the well. But if you know the story, he only did it after confronting her with the truth of her sin. Oh, that, that we could strike that delicate balance in our own lives of grace and truth that was found in Jesus. Some people today only want the preacher to preach grace so they can go on living the way they want to live without guilt or conviction. They don't want any truth. But on the other end of the spectrum, you have people, listen, you have people who have been so beaten up by the truth that they feel there is no hope for them in God. These people desperately need to hear about the grace of Jesus. Grace that is greater than our sin. They need to hear that because of grace, there's hope. Amen. Jesus came dispensing the strong medicine of truth and the healing balm of grace. And he did it with an absolute perfect balance every single time. So that's the interpretation of the text. Let's spend our last few moments tonight on the application. What does the doctrine of the incarnation 
mean to us today? Is there some, some truth that we can take with us that will help us on a, a daily basis? And my answer tonight is yes, yes, there is. And here's the first one tonight. Because God became a man and lived among us, he understands. Amen. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews, would you, real quick. The book of Hebrews, and I want you to, to, to turn to chapter 4 if you have your Bibles tonight. Hebrews chapter 4. Because Jesus became flesh, one of us, he understands. Paul wrote in Hebrews regarding Jesus in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, look at it. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was, look at it church, in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Because God became a man, there is nothing you have ever faced or ever will face that he will not be able to identify with. I'm talking about rejection, hurt, loss, disappointment, temptation, false accusations, physical pain, emotional suffering, abandonment, exhaustion, stress, sorrow, crying, you name it. And I'm telling you tonight, as our great high priest who came and lived in the flesh, he can identify with it. Because for 33 years, he lived as one of us. Isn't that awesome? So bring your worries. Bring your cares, bring your fears, your hurts. Listen, bring them all to Jesus because he understands. As a matter of fact, the very next verse in Hebrews 4 says this, let us therefore come boldly under the throne of what church say it? Grace that we may obtain mercy and find what church? Grace to help in time of need. Because God became one of us. He understands. So as we Take him up on his invitation in Hebrews 4.16 to come boldly. That doesn't mean arrogantly. It, it, it doesn't mean demanding. That word bold there means with confidence. Come confidently knowing that God understands the hurt that you're about to bring to him. He understands being betrayed. He understands being lied about. He understands about temptation. He understands about emotional pain. He understands about the physical pain. And you will not bring anything to him at any time that he will not be able to identify with. 
The second takeaway from John's teaching on the incarnation is that there is a balance. There is a balance between grace and truth. There's a balance for parents when dealing with their children. Listen, the environment of a home where truth is the dominant quality can be cruel and harsh and detrimental. Just always, ah, ah, ah. And, and the truth may be exactly that, the truth. And sometimes it, it, there, there has to be truth. But if that's all there is in our home, and I've shared this with you before as a, a young parent, as a, a, a young dad, at that time, I was the, the youth pastor here at Fellowship Baptist Church. And, and I, I, dealing with young people, I, I made a vow in my own heart because for some reason, some parents didn't think their kids could ever do wrong. Ever. It was always some other kid's fault. And so I made a vow to myself, I'm not going to be that parent. And so consequently, our oldest, TJ... When he was born, he couldn't do anything right, ever. Every time someone in the church came to me, well, TJ did this, he didn't even get the benefit of the doubt. He just got his hind end blistered. And it was just all about truth and all about truth and all about truth and all about truth. But yet on the other end of the spectrum, as a youth pastor I saw, were parents that were just all about grace. It was all about grace. It was all enabling. Well, we're just going to let them do this. We're going to let them do that. We, we're afraid if we make them do this, then they'll, they'll, they'll hate God and they won't want to come to church. And blah, blah, blah. Don't get me started on that. Blah, 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 blah. But listen tonight. There's a balance, mom and dad, between grace and truth. When it's all truth, it's cruel and harsh and detrimental. But when it's all grace, it creates an environment that is weak and enabling and equally detrimental. Consider this tonight. Relationships of truth without grace dry up. Relationships of grace without truth blow up. That is, they become self-destructive. But relationships of truth and grace grow up. There's a balance for parents. There's a balance for couples, mom and dad. There's a balance for husbands and wives in dealing with issues in their marriage. Yes, we ought to speak the truth. But we ought to do it with grace. There's a balance for pastors and other ministry leaders when leading their people. Yes, sometimes we have to confront people with truth. But we ought to do it in a graceful way, the best we can. Unfortunately, because we're not Jesus, we'll never strike the perfect balance. But there is no doubt we can all strive. Would you agree with me on this? That we can all strive to strike a better balance. 
God help us to speak truth to our children, to our spouse, and to those we lead. But at the same time, may he grant us grace to love and nurture and forgive. Finally, because God became a man full of grace and truth, there's grace available for our every need. Look at verse 16 again. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I like to think of, of grace as God's supply for our every need when we need it. So let me ask you tonight, what, what's your need tonight? Whatever it is, there's grace for that. Is it patience? Do you find yourself praying for something and it, it seems like your prayers aren't getting through? Do you feel like you've been in this difficult time long enough and it just seems as though you'll never get out? Listen to me tonight, church. There's grace for the wait. You need healing tonight, whether your pain is physical or emotional, there's grace for the hurt. Maybe what you need tonight is grace to be able to forgive. God promises, we read it, God promises to give us grace for every need if we'll only ask. You know what that means tonight? It means he'll give us grace to forgive. Listen, grace to forgive even the most grievous offense. God can do that. If you believe that, say amen. amen. God can do that. Maybe your need tonight is strength. Because the trials of life just keep coming at you. Maybe you feel like a crash dummy tonight. It's just one hit right after another. And you're so discouraged. And you're so depressed. And you're wondering to yourself if it will ever end. Listen to me tonight. There's grace for that. It could be. That your greatest need tonight is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. There's grace for that. As a matter of fact, the Bible is very clear. That's the only way. That's the only way we can have a right relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, is by grace. That simply means that it, it, it comes to us as a result of God's goodness to us. We don't earn it. We don't inherit it. We don't grow into it. It's not something that some church can give us. And we certainly don't deserve it. So have you received 
God's grace and salvation. That is, if you ever come to a place when you realized that you were a sinner and that you couldn't save yourself, you couldn't go to church enough times to save, you couldn't be baptized enough times to save, you couldn't partake of communion enough times to be saved, you couldn't do enough good deeds, give enough money to be saved. Because that's not about, that's not what salvation is about. Salvation is about, I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. God, I need you to save me. Jesus died for you. And he was buried and rose again the third day. And he offers his grace to whosoever will. Say, well, I'm not sure. Well, listen to me. If there's ever been a moment like that in your life, you will never forget it. You'll know it. And I know this is Wednesday night, but hey, we've had people saved in this auditorium on Wednesday nights. So let's not take that for granted. God Becoming a man is more than just a theological preaching point. It's a truth that is still impacting our lives today. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer.